0: he was very guarded and very protective of his castle.
1: I knew he was older and I knew he was alone and I didn't think he had any friends.
2: From the neighbor's point of view, he was a cantankerous man.
1: He had the most amazing sense of humor. Um, When I would talk to him, I would sometimes laugh so hard that I would beg him to stop. Being around Herman
0: too long might make you want to commit suicide.
1: I remember he told me something about working with Count ba- Basie.
0: Herman was, you know, when he was 16 years old, he, you know, he was arranging for Count Basie. The guy was brilliant. It was part of him. It was innate.
2: It sounds like he was very lonely.
0: I don't think he ever called me like before 2 in the afternoon, but he would call until 3, 4 in the morning, and I was usually up, and my wife hated it because, you know,
1: I don't think anybody around here knew him. That's pretty weird, you know.
3: This is Home, stories from L.A. I'm Bill (laughs) Barole. This is a story about the golden age of Hollywood, and after, and a minor player who should have been major, about love, loss, and loneliness. And a house that became a home, and then just a house, and then, again, a home.
4: Um, and here, of course, is the original designs and Corian Rodwell, where is it? Usually it lists Stein everywhere. Um, Mr., Mr. and Mrs. Herman Stein. Amesbury, Los Angeles. I don't know what 12D is. It must be the lot number.
3: This is Mark Knowles. He's the third occupant of the Stein House, after Herman and Anita Stein, who built it in 1961. Mark and his husband, Mark Perry, bought the house in a probate sale in 2008, a year after Herman Stein's death at 91, from congestive heart failure. Mark's showing me down the house's long central hallway, it's lined with one-sheets from movies, mostly monster movies, mostly from Universal, for which Hermann Stein wrote the music in the 1950s.
4: These are all the posters that I wrote, was able to find. The one in the living room is uh, Tarnished Angels, but it's, the only thing I could find was the French version, which actually I'm delighted because it's much better art than the American version. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, you know, Incredible Shrinking Man. Of course, his most, his most famous is Creature from the Black Lagoon, Mole People. This was one of his later ones. It's uh, uh, The Intruder, it's William Shatner.
3: The Stein House sits on a hill, a little above a winding street in the Los Feliz section of Los Angeles, near Griffith Park. There are all kinds of houses on the street, mid-century, streamlined modern, and directly across from the Stein House, an English
1: cottage. My name is Suzanne Flynn, and I live part-time in Los Angeles and part-time in Virginia. I've lived on and off in this house since I was born, mostly off. This was my grandfather's house.
3: Suzanne's grandfather was Victor Milner, a well-known cinematographer who went back to the silent era and later shot, among many other pictures, The Palm Beach Story and The Lady Eve for Preston Sturgis. She visited the house all through her childhood, When her grandparents died, her parents took it over. And in 1995, after her parents died, Suzanne inherited it. She still remembers the first time she became aware of the house on the hill across the street. It would have been about 1961.
1: I remember being a little kid, maybe mm, 10, 8 or 10. And my parents would send me out here to visit my grandparents. And I would sleep in that room right up there and um, they had a little cot in that room and I would look out and they were building that I believe at that time they were building those houses and I remembered thinking how cool they were because they were modern and you know this house is not and I kept thinking how how sad it was my grandparents had this old-fashioned house when there was this really cool place up on the hill.
3: Decades went by. Suzanne split her time between the East and West Coasts. One day, as best she can recall it was around 2002, she saw the old man from across the street coming down his driveway in a long, old car. He said something to her. She can't remember what now, but she does remember it was funny and charming. And she thought, I'd like to get to know this guy better. So she got his number and invited him over for dinner. He declined, politely. But they did start talking on the phone, sometimes at very odd hours.
1: Many of the times that I was living here, I didn't sleep well at night. And my office is up in that loft there, so when the light's on, he could see it. Or he could see it from some of the other rooms. And at two o'clock in the morning, if you're awake and you're looking out and you see somebody's light on, you know they're awake, and so he'd call me. And we would talk, sometimes for two or three hours on the phone or until I'd fall asleep.
3: I asked her if Stein ever talked about his time as a staff composer at Universal in the 1950s.
1: What I really remember is he told me that in his day, he wasn't very well regarded, nor was anyone that wrote soundtracks. And, and he laughed about some of the stuff he did because he said it wasn't very good, but he didn't care.
0: He was so bitter, but he had a right to be from the standpoint of if there's any fairness in the universe, Herman should have, you know, Herman should have had an Academy Award. He, you know, he scored This Island, Earth, which was one of the great scores of the 50s, so varied and innovative.
3: This is David Schechter. He was, for the last 12 years of Herman's life, his friend, his advisor, and his musical right hand. In 1995, Schechter and his wife Kathleen Main started the record label. Monstrous movie music
0: a lot of the, um, a lot of my friends who I knew who were record producers and everything, they were a generation or two before me, and they were in love with Gone with the Wind and Adventures of Robin Hood and all that. And I love that stuff too, but my babysitters growing up were the mole people and uh, you know that kind of stuff that came on at 3: you know, thirty in the morning in New York. So I wanted to treat that music with the respect that I don't think it had gotten up to that point where we actually were faithful to the compositions and because uh, these were, you know, the same composers who wrote music for well-regarded films also wrote them for these programmers. And people would kind of poo-poo those lower grade ones and and I knew it was, you know, the music was the same. The music is not um, good or bad based on the film, it's based on the compositional skills of the, of the composer.
3: When Schechter decided to start his label, he knew that one of the first composers he wanted to issue was Herman Stein, whose work he'd admired ever since he first heard it on a budget-priced record called Dick Jacob's Themes from Horror Movies. It was released in 1959. It was a god-awful recording. There was really only one problem when the time came to track down Herman Stein. He was listed in what few books mentioned him, and I
0: think maybe few was one or two, as having died in, I believe, 1984. and. I wanted to find out where his archive was, so I started calling Steins up in Los Angeles. You know, and there's not a not a hell of a lot of Jews out here, so it didn't take long at all. And then one day the phone rang, and my wife kind of her face was white. She came up to me and she said, "That dead guy's on the phone."
3: Norman Stein was born in Philadelphia in 1915. He was a prodigy who started playing piano when he was three, and was performing in public at six. As a teenager, he taught himself orchestration by studying scores in the reading room at the Free Library of Philadelphia. He moved to Los Angeles in 1948, got married to Anita Shervin, another transplanted Philadelphian who was a violist with the LA Philharmonic, and went to composer Mario Castelnuovo Tedesco to study composition. Castelnuovo Tedesco gave him a sort of entrance exam, showing him a theme and telling him to write nine variations on it. Stein came back with 37. There's nothing I can teach you, Castelnuovo Tedesco told him, and he and Stein were friends for the rest of his life. By the time Stein signed on at Universal in 1951, it was a good moment for homegrown composers. Film music was moving out beyond the romantic sound of the European emigres who had dominated the scene in the 30s and 40s, and toward a more American sound, inflected with modernism. Less Vienna, more Flatbush. That sound was a natural fit for the monster movies that were Universal's bread and butter in the 50s, and Stein, along with fellow staff composers Henry Mancini, Hans Salter, and Frank Skinner, contributed to some of the decade's most memorably scary pictures, including Creature from the Black Lagoon, The Mole People, It Came from Outer Space, and This Island Earth. Stein was a natural for it.
0: One thing that was amazing about Herman's style is he knew how to push dissonance to the point where it didn't reach that dissonant point where you went like that. He had voicings and he knew how to compose in a way that could really create the emotions and sensations you got from listening to dissonant music without it being dissonant.
3: Stein's brain, David Schechter recalls, was a kind of musical computer.
0: I was asking him one time about the derivation of a cue, and I said, um, do you know the cue, you know, Molly and Peg from Ride Clear of Diablo? I'm making this up. And he'd say, wait a second, Ride Clear of Diablo. Well, give me a second. And all of a sudden you'd hear him at the piano. And he would not just be playing the melody... He w- it was orchestrated, and it was full, and you could hear the woodwinds and the brass, and he would play the entire coup from beginning to end. I said, did you have the music there? He said, no, no, I just remember it. I said, Herman, when's the last time you played this
3: thing? He said, oh, I've never played it. I, I, I wrote it. Anyway, it's 1995. Schechter, arguably Stein's biggest fan, finally succeeds in tracking him down very much alive and tells him he wants to reissue some of his work. I told him um,
0: I wanted to record some of your classic horror music. And the first thing he said
3: was, why would you want to do that crap? This was the curse of talented people in the studio system. Writers and actors suffered from it too. An inborn sense of illegitimacy, of inadequacy. They all
0: thought they could be Beethoven, except they didn't have the talent. So they looked at themselves as second-class citizens.
3: Suzanne Flynn again. Remember, her grandfather was Preston Sturgis' cinematographer.
1: I, I had said to him at one time, did you ever know my grandpa? I was just kind of, I thought that, you know, they're both in the industry, they should have known one another, and he said, oh, no. I would never even think to talk to your grandfather because your grandfather was this real uh, impressive la dee guy, and I was just this little nothing person.
3: Stein may have come to Hollywood already thinking it was a step down or back, he once told Suzanne Flynn, I went from being a serious musician to doing these movie things. But the studio sure didn't help.
0: Now, the thing about Herman was, uh, he was cursed because he was working for Universal International. And Universal International had a music department run by Joseph Gershenson. And he would juggle around composers so that uh, under, the, under the guise that... Uh, we have so many things to do we got to get herman off this picture and let's bring these other two people in
1: to do it sometimes he would go in and he would record i guess record or whatever it was one did or he did uh and he would spend the whole day and he'd go from one place and then he'd go do a whole nother one and then he'd go back to the first one it was all pretty um it wasn't well organized
0: no it would He moved the composers around so There would be two or three composers, and the unwritten rule was you couldn't give credit to two or three composers, so music supervision by Joe Gershenson would be the only credit there. So Herman labored for that studio for about seven, eight years, and probably got about five credits. ¶¶
3: When MCA took over Universal in the early 60s and reorganized the music department, Stein, with his handful of official credits, was more or less out in the cold. He did some of his best work in this period, including the soundtrack for Roger Corman's The Intruder, right around the time he and Anita were building the house on the hill, and the family theme for the Lost in Space TV show. But a combination of things, a personality that could be prickly, bitterness over the credit he didn't receive for his work at Universal, and an increasing amount of pain from a botched surgery in the 1950s that had left him a hunchback, maybe just the passage of time. It was all too much, and he withdrew.
0: Because if you look at his house, he was isolated up there. He had this little castle, and he... Hollywood treated him bad, and he, he retreated
3: from the world. Time went on, and even the TV work dried up. Stein's last credit was on blazing stewardesses, a cheap exploitation picture in 1975. And it was Herman and Anita in their house on the hill.
0: When I met Anita, she was already she was very ill and very weak, and he would bring her over to our Burbank home and she would sit very quietly. Sometimes she'd stay out in the car and whether it was because Herman didn't want her to, to leave the car or or what, um, I don't know, but she was very sweet.
3: Mark Perry moved in up the street in 1999. By that time, Herman had something of a reputation around
2: the neighborhood as a crank. There is a large vacant lot next door to the property and there is a shared driveway between the two houses that were built by the same architect, one of them being Herman Stein's house. And. They wanted to build on the vacant lot. They wanted to extend the driveway. And he absolutely refused and fought it tooth and nail because he did not want to have any kind of construction, trucks or anything that might block an ambulance's access to get to his wife.
1: This was a man who was so in love with his wife. And when I met him, she was dead. And I don't know how long she had been dead, but the clearest impression I got was he loved her more than anything and anyone. And she was a love of his life. She was his muse. He loved her. And he talked about her all the time.
0: After, I don't know if you know this, but after Anita died, Herman would never sleep in that bed. And as far as I know, he never changed the sheets. He just left them there, and he slept, I think, on the couch in the living room or something like that. It was like, I know, like the shrine. You, you can say, yeah, when, when Anita died, Herman died, but Herman was going to die anyway. He was in bad shape, but I didn't see much of a change from after Anita died in how he treated me. We, when she was alive, we talked all the time, we joked all the time. Afterwards, the same thing. But, you know, that was just maybe two hours a day we talked.
3: Herman and Suzanne Flynn struck up a friendship shortly after Anita's death. They talked on the phone every day. But only on the phone.
1: I never saw him in person. Other than when he was in the car. He implied that the house was a real mess. And it really was terrible. And he didn't want anyone to see it. And that was was usually what he said.
0: And we would just sit in the entryway to the house, because he didn't want me seeing the rest of the house because it was a mess. It was out of control. And Anita, you know, especially after Anita died and everything, and uh, things just got worse and worse
3: and worse. Herman died in March of 2007. There was no funeral.
2: The estate was a mess, and the house went into probate. Mark Perry again. There was an open house on Easter Sunday. And let me just say, it is a 1961 mid-century, modern, post-and-beam, architectural gem. Uh, he built the house. It's the Hermann Stein House. All of the plans for the house say the Herman Stein House. He and Anita built the house to their own specifications. The open house was on an Easter Sunday in 2008. And when I walked in, it was like a cocktail party. I'd never seen so many people at an open house, but people were walking through and talking about tearing down walls and moving things and saying it was a tear down. And I thought, they're insane. The kitchen is 1961, the original uh, dishwasher was there, and when we opened it, there was still a period 1961 sample pack of Cascade dishwashing liquid. It had never been used. They had never used the dishwasher.
3: Mark Knowles.
4: When we were doing the first, after we we made the first offer and we, well, we were going through the house, like they give you, you know, we tore it and then we, we talk about making an offer. I was alone in the living room in the only chair that was original, that was still in the house. And I made a promise to Herman Stein that if he helped us get this house, I would not change a thing.
3: The probate judge accepted Mark and Mark's offer over ones from a young married couple and a developer who came to court with, literally, a suitcase full of cash. Shortly after the sale closed, they were talking to a neighbor who lived across the shared driveway from the Stein house.
2: And he told them a story. He told us that after Herman died, he was with the people who went into the house to clear it out. And, um that it was a hoarder situation that there was a lot of stuff mm-hmm. that he had accumulated and um, there is a mirrored dressing room very feminine off of the master bath and in the wall is a mirror that if you press on it it's a spring catch and it opens and there's a walk-in closet inside and according to David when they went into the house the mirror door had been sealed with several strips of silver duct tape.
4: And they didn't, they didn't know that there was a closet. They didn't understand why the closet had, they thought maybe the mirror had come off and he had just, you know, you necess- jerry-rigged it.
2: Right, you wouldn't necessarily know that it was a door taped the way it was. And he said that when that was all peeled away and they opened the closet and discovered that it was a closet, it contained all of his wife's. Clothes, possessions, everything.
4: And he just sealed it up like a tomb.
3: Mark and Mark have owned the Stein House for about seven years now time enough for new owners to expunge the traces of things that happened there in the past, for good or ill. After all, a house is just a house, right? It's wood and concrete, siding and drywall. Unless, through some small miracle of space and time, it falls into the right hands, and it isn't.
4: I have always felt that the house had presence, and I don't know what that presence is, but I would assume it's probably the Steins, but it just reeks of creative energy. And it's one of the reasons why I have a a writing group that meets here every week. It just felt like it would be, it just felt like, I don't know, that somehow it would be wrong to not somehow let other people experience and and experience the creative energy that's in the house.
3: I don't know if I believe, as Mark Knowles does, that Herman and Anita are a living presence in the house they built in 1961 when they were young and the future was still theirs. But I don't have to. It's not my house. It's Mark and Mark's and Herman and Anita's. Before I go, I tell Mark Knowles that it seems like he's gone out of his way to do right by the Steins in the house they built together
4: yeah yeah um absolutely and and to just fill it with creative energy and love lots of love
0: david herman again i hate to leave any clear space on your tape it's 120 now I just want to tell you, I forgot to mention it, that Friday's completely clear. I'm at your entire garbage disposal. Everything will be just fine. I hope you're doing well where you are there and impressing the populace and the peasants and making a million dollars a day, at least. Okay, I'll let you go. I promise I'll take up any more space in your tape unless I hit
2: the lottery, in which case you'll never hear from me again. God bless you all. Bye-bye.